2: Hey, there's a new podcast out called Your Table's Ready. It's a collaboration with London's most loved and most missed bars and restaurants. You'll hear from founders like Pizza Pilgrims, Corazon, Design My Night, Lima, Crosstown Donuts, Nightjar, and so many more. You'll hear about how they built their businesses, bumps they hit along the way, their learnings from it all, and finally what they're doing to survive in the lockdown. If you're thinking of opening up your own business, or if you're a foodie and want to get closer to the brands you love, or if you're just sick of listening to podcasts about Corona and the fate of the world, give this a listen. Your Tables Ready is available on iTunes, Spotify, and Acast. Subscribe now to get the episode straight into your feed.
0: Hello, this is Eat Sleep Work with me. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. If you're listening to this episode, go to the first link in the show notes and sign up to get the weekly newsletter. In this weird time, I've been doing very frequent updates, newsletters on a weekly basis, but less frequent podcasts. And the reason why is just there's so much happening and so much evolving, but I find it far more compelling if I present you articles and evidence rather than just uh, come on here and talk myself. So it's the first link. If you sign up, thousands and thousands of people have already signed up and it's it's becoming For me, a an incredible place for me to try and share some of the the big evidence about what's happening. And look, here's why it matters: is because something's flipped in the last couple of weeks. You may have noticed it. I heard someone talking about uh, quoting Ernest Hemingway, and Ernest Hemingway was asked how he went bankrupt, and he said in two ways: gradually, then suddenly. And that's what's happened to the office. We went into this weird lockdown. It felt odd. And, you know, it felt very sudden. You might have seen the trending topic last week on social media, hashtag last normal photograph. And you can see that it sort of caught us a little bit by surprise. We knew it was coming, but we thought it might last two or three weeks. And, and no doubt something has changed. Here's why I think it's, uh, it's fundamentally changed. Well, you probably saw a series of companies, first Google, then Facebook, then a, a series of other organizations saying that workers wouldn't be expected to return till the end of the year. And gradually, I think it's starting to dawn on us that this actually isn't like a, a temporary sojourn out of the office. It's actually something more full time. First time I've seen Tokyo was saying maybe they won't be holding the Olympics next year. Cambridge have already said that their university won't be inviting students back till the middle of 2021. So we're in this zone where I think it's starting to dawn on us. That normalcy isn't returning, but there was a series of, of articles that I posted on the newsletter that I think start giving substance to this. Last week, Morgan Stanley CEO announced that the company had proven they could operate with no, no footprint. No office at all. The CEO of Barclays, Jess Stanley, said that the idea of putting 7,000 people in a building might be a thing of the past. The boss of Nielsen, a research company, said the, the company plans to convert its offices to team meeting spaces where workers will only be asked to come in once or twice a week. Sir Martin Sorrell said he plans to uh, to save his money of offices and spend it on people. Google pulled out of a massive property deal, and, and, and. I chatted to someone last week who works at a major news outlet, and he said, uh, he said, their building has 1,400 people coming into it in the old days, every single day. Over the last month, they've had, the last two months, they've had 30 people come in and the product hasn't changed. He said, if you don't think the world's changed, you're bananas. And this is the critical thing. We're in a zone right now where... Truly, we're not now building work culture to try and deal with this weird interim situation. Anyone who isn't thinking about what the new normal is going to be is missing a trick. And that's where the newsletter comes in. Hopefully you're going to find a whole load of absolutely compelling information really taking you on a journey. And trying to sort of help you be the advocate in your office for changing things. What does it mean? Well, firstly, work's going to be fundamentally different. There's an old episode of Seinfeld where George loses his car keys and leaves his car at work as a
3: result. George? Mr. (laughs) William? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but Mr. Steinbrenner and I really want you to know we appreciate all the hours you've been putting in.
4: It's all because of that car.
5: See, Steinbrenner is like the first guy in at the crack of dawn. He sees my car, he figures I'm the first guy in. Then, the last person to leave is Wilhelm. He sees my car, he figures I'm burning the midnight oil. Between the two of them, they think I'm working an 18-hour day. <laughs> Locking your keys in your car is the best career move you ever made. <laughs>
0: and that was it. That's, that's the old model of work. The, our bosses liked having us in the office to see that we were working, and now we're going to transition to a world where being in the office is less relevant than getting the job done. Please do sign up to the newsletter. I think you're going to find it a compelling asset to help you lead cultural change at your organisation. Really good episode for you today. It's um, an exploration into a couple of things. Firstly, for Mental Health Awareness Week that this is coming out in. It's a discussion with two firefighters and we're going to be hearing really some of the challenges of a job that's so conflicted with stress and anxiety, but also has, has moments of camaraderie and and. Uh, comradeship and really sort of connectivity and I wanted to understand how you balance those things and I think the critical thing that they to, the the firefighters talk about is they talk about the importance of being able to say that you're not feeling okay then later in the episode we're talking to former guest Jez Groom and his colleague April Velicott who've written a book really about nudge theory and about how we can bring behavioral economics into work and I've just um trimmed down a really nice story that they told of how these things can apply. Jez is a former guest, so if you are interested, there's a a whole load of stuff in the episode that I did formerly with Jez. I spoke to Jim White. Jim's a watch manager from West Midlands Fire Service. He was 12 years on the front line. And when I spoke to him, he just moved to an office job. And then I spoke to Steve Harris. And Steve Harris has been 26 years in the fire service, 14 years on engines, and now he's in management. They explained to me a lot of the work In fire, he's inevitably on fire prevention, trying to get ahead of fires and training. About 6% of their time, he's spent responding to actual incidents, going out and responding to fires. More than anything, I wanted to understand about those extremes of emotions. Firstly, I wanted to understand about that change of pace. Can you be doing something and then suddenly you're yanked out of it and your day's transformed?
5: Day shifts will generally start at 8 o'clock and finish at 6pm. We do have different types of shift systems. We're doing a 10 till 10 system as well. But we'll be in at 8 o'clock. We'll take over from the night shift. We'll see if anything needs chasing up, see if, if they've broken anything, see if they've lost anything. Um, but you're not on nights, days or nights forever? You, you no, must... we'll do two day shifts, 2, 8 right. till 6. And then we will come back on at 6pm f- the following day and then do our two night shifts for right. 14 hours. How many times do actual call-outs happen? Or how common is that? Well, that's the the golden question, really, isn't it? You can go in some days and have nothing whatsoever. You can go in other days and you're out at two minutes past eight o'clock and you might not see the station again for the rest of the day. It literally is is sort of swings and roundabouts as that, really. I mean, during the summer, you could be out all day and all night. Yeah, I'll I'll
4: come in a little bit that. So our day is sort of made up of the fire service, the modern 21st century fire service. A lot of our role is preventing fires, preventing accidents, doing whatever we can. So significant portions of our day in that public contact time is to trying to prevent stuff. So fitting smoke detectors in properties and what we call a safe and well visit is how we try and save lives by stopping the fire happening in the first place, coming to your house, fit you a smoke detector, making sure you don't have a fire. So that has significantly cut down the amount of time we attend responding to incidents, but it's still saving lives. Right. So anything between sort of might only be around about 6% on average of our time is spent responding to incidents. That could be house fires, property fires, industrial fires, could be road traffic collisions, could be rescuing bariatric patients. There's a large right. range of incidents. Then you've got some training time, could be around sort of 40% of our time. And then you've got your prevention time. So there's, the day is made up of lots of different stuff. very small proportion of it is response time, but it's the most important part, obviously alongside those trying to
0: prevent fires. It it strikes me as like this, from the outside, it strikes me that that unpredictability must make the extremes even more extreme. If you've got, you know, maybe a calm morning or you're going and you're doing fire prevention work and then all of a sudden you find yourself in the middle of something quite horrific, the contrast must be extreme. Is is that an even appropriate question?
4: Yeah,
5: absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's often been the case you could be doing a protection work, prevention work in somebody's house, putting up smoke alarms, and you will get a call. So you would rush out of somebody's house, jump on the fire engine, and you could literally be walking into a burning building within, within five minutes. So that juxtaposition of the nice, calm prevention side. Yeah, the,
4: completely... the, the difference between, you know, in, in that, from a psychological point of view, activating those cortisol and those adrenaline levels can be massive. Yeah. You could be sitting having your lunch. Most firefighters you meet will be really fast eaters because you never know if the, if yeah. the alarm's going to go off. So you could be sit, calmly having a chat around something, and the next minute you're responding to a house fire person's reported. You've activated your fight or flight part of your brain, and you just don't know what's going to happen next. And then an hour later, you could be back finishing your meal. So, that, as you said, that juxtaposition, you never know what's coming next. And you're not always prepared for it, but you sort of switch into that autopilot mode when you need to. But the coming down from that is sometimes a difficult right. part.
0: Do you long for those moments? You said 6% of the times you're on the, those calls. If the adrenaline is properly pumping through your veins, especially you, you've just, you know, James, Jim, you've, you've just stopped being on duty. Do you miss that sort of the buzz of being in a
5: burning property? I think you do to some respect, but you would never wish harm on anyone. So it's a strange sort of feeling of, yeah, I joined this job to help the public. But a lot of our time is helping the public, not from the perspective you joined the fire service for. So we can do just as much good being out there doing our prevention and protection work as we could ever, you know, go into the fires, go into the car crashes. So it is quite difficult to handle that. You're only out six percent, but when you look at it in a broader perspective, I think you realise you're doing good, whatever you're doing. Right. But it's not like when you when you
0: retire, pe- people don't say, "I miss the buzz of going out, biting fires."
4: Having recently spoke to some retired people, what they miss is the the sort of the fellowship, the camaraderie, right. that being around people who understand the life and the world that you're in. They might not necessarily miss the buzz of fighting fires, but they certainly miss that fellowship, that b- brotherhood, for want of a better yeah. phrase.
0: Yeah. And, and tell me this. So that's, that's an interesting thing. Someone, a policeman told me, he said, police, because they want, because these are different objectives, right, of, of the way that they pair people, but police are often with different people all the time because yeah. it's to prevent any, any sort of bad practices getting in, whereas firefighters can often spend their whole career with the same people. Yeah. And so is camaraderie one of the things that you think defines
5: the time of people who are on a watch? Yeah, definitely. But that also helps you in those dark moments when you have been to something pretty horrific because you realise that you're with people that know you as well as can be. You effectively live with these people for four days out of eight. So if you've got to have a difficult conversation with somebody, you know how to have that conversation with them. So in that sense, that camaraderie is there. You've built those bonds You've been through difficult periods together. You've gone out and had a drink together. So it probably helps you tackle some of the tougher times right. easier. Yeah. It, it, it's absolutely, it, it, this
4: is a career it? for a lot of us. It, it, it's a vocation. You know, I, I've probably had more in depth conversations about the traumatic things I've seen than I probably will have had at home because you don't want to impose that secondary trauma onto your wife or your partner. You may say, oh, I've had a tough day, but you might not talk in the extreme detail that I would talk to James if we'd been out to the same, say, road traffic collision. Right. We might talk around the mess table, or have a cup of tea around. Now, that was a bit tough, we've seen this, we've seen that. Would I necessarily have that chat at home? Probably not in the same grim detail. So with that camaraderie, yeah. shared understanding yeah. is is important.
0: Yeah, so a London firefighter fire told me exactly the parallel of that. He said, you know, he'd been called to... The, an engineer had been called to deal with a, um, a, pass, a, a pedestrian on a train track who'd been hit by the train. And so he said their unfortunate job was to go and deal with the aftermath of that. And he said that, albeit he, you know, he, he said him and his colleague dealt with it and you sort of, you bring a grim humour to it at, at times. But uh, he said, there's no way he could have told his wife what he'd done that day. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if that creates a burden where you sort of, you're talking about things a bit, but you're not able to ever share them with people around you. It, it creates, um, I've recently had some chats around calling to the
4: therapy and a doctor, it's, it, we refer to it, it's a little bit of a Superman syndrome. Where, you know, we joined to fight fires. when I did, you joined to fight fires. people join now, ultimately still, to, to be that hero. But what comes with that is that burden of, can I show people that I've been affected by it? Right. Um, And I think we're getting better as a a whole sort of emergency sector around it's okay not to be okay. There's lots of support around that. But you do sometimes go home and think, I can't really tell them that. One, because I might show that I'm affected by it. Or two, I don't want to necessarily impose that on my wife or my child. So I think it depends on the type of person you are. Um, Historically, I think you would have seen firefighters that, that wouldn't share anything. Now we are definitely seeing that. Moving forward, people are happy to share and talk about the trauma they've been through and how it affects them.
0: And are you encouraged to do that? Would that be one of the things that you think about trying to create a spirit where people talk about these traumas? Uh, I personally do, yeah. You know,
4: I'm more than willing to talk about any kind of mental health issue that I've had, and I've recently been off and I'm willing to talk about that. But we have tried to create a culture where, and we talked about this earlier, We do something what's called critical incident debriefing, where we would go out, for example, to James' watch after a nasty incident and just sit down with them and talk and ask them about what reactions have you had? How is this making you feel? So it's all about trying to just normalise a
0: reaction. Right. We use a phrase called... So this is critical incident debriefing?
4: Yeah, there's, there's,
0: there's lots of models out there. We've kind of written our own one. And so you go in, so James has gone to a crashed car. Yep. He's witnessed something that is graphic, yep. What well, you sit down with him and you effectively just try to draw out his emotional response from that.
4: Yeah, so we wouldn't go in instantly. We, we might send somebody to see him immediately after the incident and just check in, make sure they're okay. Do you need a cup of tea? Do you just need five minutes? And then up to sort of 48 hours later, we would send a team in. If James agreed, it's all voluntary, and I would sit down and just go, all right, James, how are you? How are you? Following that incident four days ago, what reactions are left? But it would be a shared understanding. The whole crew would be there. It's not a one-to-one. And the idea being, James might go, yeah, I'm all right, actually. But, you know, the female firefighter next to him, she might say, yeah, I'm okay. But someone further down the table might go, actually, I haven't slept properly for two days. And it's about saying, well, that's okay. That's a normal reaction. And what we have found over the time is the person that generally doesn't want to say anything just gets some benefit from that shared understanding. Just sit in the room while it's happening. Sit in the room. So they're saying they're affected by it. That means I can say I'm affected by it. So it's about encouraging, it's okay not to be okay. What you've experienced is beyond the normal range of expectations. So we shouldn't expect you to deal with it normally. And what we know is 95% of people will generally recover after four days. It's those extra 5% where we go, it's okay that you're not feeling okay.
5: Here's what you do about it. I think that's where having the same crew, the same watch for a consistent period will help as well because you know how that person reacts. You know if they're being a bit quiet or there's something not quite right and you might be able to broach them in a better situation. We might be in the gym or watching TV or having a cup of tea. It might just be the right time then and there to say, are yeah, all right? Do you, do you need to speak to somebody? And I've had that a couple of times in the past where I've spoke to somebody in the gym, there's nobody else around, and that's the right time to have that conversation then. So being with the same people consistently helps you know what your what your friends yeah. are up to or what's happening to them? Tell me this, is there ever a sense of,
0: whether rightful or, or not, of responsibility? That, you know, you've gone into a situation, you hoped the outcome would be one thing and the outcome wasn't. Does
5: the firefighter ever sort of blame themselves or is it's it never? It's human that? nature though, isn't yeah, it? Is it? What could I have done better? What right. could I have done different? We try and get to every incident within five minutes. We don't think we can physically get there much quicker. You know, we have a very fast response time. We have a very fast reaction time. We measure these metrics to see how fast we can get to these incidents. If we could get there any quicker, we would. But knowing we've done all we can to get there as fast as we can and do what we can as soon as we get there does take some of the burden off. Yeah. Because we know we've done all we can. Yeah. I mean...
4: It, it, the, the important thing in debriefing five eyes is, is to say, you know, we are, we are one of the most highly trained, fastest effective response fire services in the country. However, we can't always save everybody. And the yeah. reactions you generally see will be those classic fear, guilt, anger, helplessness, frustration. Those five is generally the five we will try and talk mm-hmm. to a watch about and say, it's okay that you feel guilty because yeah. it's a normal human reaction. It's okay that you feel angry. And yeah, you might have felt helpless and you're frustrated by it, They're all normal reactions that everybody experiences every day of their life when they face something traumatic. What we try and do sometimes in the emergency services sector is say, it shouldn't affect me. And it's about saying, James, it's okay that you're affected by that. And here's how it might get better. And if it doesn't, here's where you go for the help. But fear, guilt, anger, helplessness, frustration. You see all the time.
0: Tell me this, from the perspective of 26 years in the service, have you noticed mental health issues are bigger now or... And, and if so, is that because of societal changes? What's, yeah. How has it changed? Um, it's, it's an interesting one. I think with, particularly, I can only talk
4: from a fire point of view, when I joined inner city stations, people tended to live probably within 10, 15, more, no more than 30 minutes reach of the station. So we could stay after work and, and go to the pub and have a pint and okay. do that stuff. Everybody seems to live further out now, so you don't stop behind so much. Everybody guns home. And then I could go home for four days off and not see anybody that I've worked right. with for four days. So I think it's a bigger issue now because it's more prominent. There's less of that right. camaraderie. The camaraderie is still there, but it's perhaps not as much as it was because everybody's got busy lives. Right. I can easily text James now rather than stay behind and have a 10-minute conversation with him and that.
0: So That's interesting, that is, though, isn't it? That almost, you know, probably, you know, for, for we could give five, ten reasons why going to the pub probably isn't the right thing to do mm-hmm. but it's interesting that the pub actually helped with some of those soft softer sides of the job as well
4: yeah and, and that's why we've always gone down the road of this debriefing we will come and have a physical conversation we were over that humanistic let's have a cup of tea right round a table where you're comfortable because you're going to tell me more because i could easily do here's a web link go and read this but it doesn't get into the crux of looking james in the eye and going how are you today
0: yeah and what part does humour play in, in day-to-day? In, so you mentioned camaraderie there, and you mentioned, you know, like that the, you're with these people all the time. Is humour a big... If you were describing the job to a child, would humour be a big part of how you
5: talked about it? I think it's absolutely paramount. Right. But I think it's paramount in every walk of yeah, life, not just yeah. the emergency services, because I don't just say we go out and see this. I understand our ambulance colleagues and the police see them as well. But yeah, I mean, there's a certain type of humour that you have to adopt. Right. And I'm not saying it's... We're both
4: you're smiling the, here. Yeah. You can't see it on the podcast. We're both smiling <laughs>
5: here because there is, there is a dark
4: humour. Right. And, and you're never, ever going to get away from a dark humour. Yeah. Is it a
0: humour I would have down the pub with my friends? No. And I'm guessing people have sort of got to be in on it, right? Like, in the sense that... Like you say, certain friends are not going to get that, that sort of darkness. No, would certain friends understand that actually
4: sometimes you can find humour in the most life-changing, tragic situations? Yeah. It's really hard sometimes to explain, but me and James would absolutely get it. But there's a time and a place, and and it's a it is a kind of a a healing humor in yeah. a way. Sometimes it's hard to explain, but absolutely it plays a vital part. You, you hear
0: yeah. it of, in war times. You, you people who yeah. are in, soldiers have it, or people in war hospitals. They have like a darkness that they're almost conscious of afterwards. But it seems to be like a natural coping mechanism to to make you reset. I think. Yeah, it's it is
4: the old gallows humor, right? Um, and it's, it's, there's a time and a place for it, and yeah. then you realise then you're back and you put, right, I'll put my other head on now, and I'm back to a, a normal level of humour. And there is a time and a place for it, and you get it and you understand it. There might be some ripe language, there might be things like that, and you get it and you understand it. Ultimately, if that means we save someone's person's yeah, life, absolutely. then we make no apologies for it. Then we come back, we come back to station, and this is what I talked about earlier. To switch off fight or flight syndrome can be a real issue. And You've got to just understand, oh, I'm not out there now, I'm here, I'm back into this normal mode mm-hmm. as such.
0: You know that it sort of just it feels to me like that switching between intensity and then sort of does that
5: lead to burnout? I think we we could probably point to quite a few instances of that happening. Right. But yeah, you can you can be physically exhausted from something that isn't particularly physically demanding. Right. It could be it be minus 5 middle of winter go out to it, a relatively simple car crash, as we would say, a car on all four wheels. But if somebody's life depends on it, you will sweat like you've never sweated before. Really? And once that's over and you decompress, you realise how cold it is. Right, you realise okay. it's minus five, it's pitch black. But you've just saved somebody's life. You've taken them out of that car and you've put them in the ambulance, they've gone off. And that's when you decompress, the adrenaline starts to... Sort of subside, and then you get back to normal. Realisation of right, well, I go back and call the dinner. Right, right. so it can be that quick. I mean, the second that ambulance roars off up the road, because we don't always get the closure, because the ambulance and the paramedics and the police have got their own, their own work to start doing. Then, do you ever hear how things have gone? Do they let you know on occasion, but not always? Okay, no, not always. I was having a chat about that with somebody this morning from a
4: hospital where I said there's, there's a, a dichotomy there because sometimes, actually, it might make your reaction worse if I know that that person who yeah, were yeah. put in the ambulance alive then ends up dying. Right. Do I want to know? Sometimes it's better not knowing.
0: It's almost better to know I did what I could yeah. as yeah. part of the process, but yeah. yeah. And I think, Tom,
4: going back a little a few seconds here, you know, the ridiculousness of, of the the emergency service response sometimes. You know, James could be en route to a school visit, so he's going to meet some kids and talk about the fire engine and do an educational visit, could e- easily then quickly have to go to a, a, an RTC, road traffic collision, where somebody dies. Does that, that could be over within an hour, and then they have to go, oh, we still got to go and do that school visit. Yeah. So your world could change instantly within that day, so you've got to switch from, I've just saved someone's life,
0: or not, and I've got to go and talk to these kids. Right. That is a reality quite a performance you've got to put on, though, isn't it? It is. You've got to be the smiling guy, you know, know,
5: don't want to be grim-faced turning up with five-year-olds. We've had it before. We've been turned out to a fatal car accident at five past eight in the morning. And you've got a school visit at 10am. And you're like, right, well, we'll get our critical incident debrief and then we'll put the face on, go and do the visit. And then perhaps it's time to come back and think, actually, that... That first job at five past eight really affected me. It might take a little bit of time for it to sink in. But in that meantime, you focus on something else. So perhaps you're not thinking about that. Yeah, there is that unusual sort of, like Steve says, dichotomy of life-saving, life-threatening for some people. And then you've got to go and sort of say, this is the fire engine, this is how we squirt water. Yes, we do know somebody called Sam.
4: <laughs> and, then, and then if you then yeah, but then if you then throw in that you could easily go to a, a road traffic collision or a house and there's there's trigger points. That person could look like somebody you know. It could be the same colour car that your wife drives. When you suddenly add all that in to the fact that then I've then seen somebody dead and they were in a car that looked like the one that my brother drives. All of a sudden, you can understand. You know, how um, people and why might... would
0: the fact that your brother drives that car be a trigger? Because as you turn in, you're turning up. It's like, oh, that could be my brother's as car. As you turn
4: around the corner, yeah, you
0: could think instantly, wait right. a second, that not be my brother's movie. car.
4: It doesn't matter that it's not your brother's car. Got it. The thought's gone in there. It it adds to that trauma.
0: Wow, okay. What? The, just the mere th- hint that this might be a, like, a personal tragedy as well as a sort of human yeah. catastrophe. Yeah,
5: absolutely. Wow, okay. could but, be, you know, somebody driving to school and it could be a child involved and you think, well... I'm at work, but the wife's driving the little into school now. Right, And this could easily have been that person. Yeah. Right,
4: Particularly if you work near where you live.
2: You yeah, get called there's... an
4: RTC and you know the road and you go, that's just round the corner from where I live. And like James says, right. all my wives right. in the school run this time of day. It's, it's a natural reaction. Absolutely. And not until you turn up do you go, it's not my wife, but actually it might be somebody else's right. wife or husband. Yeah. You, you see how yeah. all of a sudden those mental
0: images, it doesn't help. So you've both moved upstairs. Is that because there's a lifespan
5: to how long you can deal with this? No, I mean, <laughs> there are still career firefighters. Yeah. Right. Hundreds of them, right. and they're all fantastic. But it's something a bit different. yeah. yeah it's yeah. looking at it from a, the other side of the coin. It's looking at the, the bigger perspective. What can we do from an organisational point of view to make the 2.3 million people we serve safer as a whole? Right. As opposed to just doing it on a case by case basis. So it's a change of perspective more than a change of role. And it's just something. I do think there's a
4: lifespan to being an operational firefighter if you don't get some support and talk about what you see. And we talk about this, there's a few people who use the the bucket of water analogy. You know, every incident is a drip of water in the bucket. And if you don't empty your bucket occasionally, it's going to overflow. Or it could be the fire. Emptying the bucket would be what? For me, emptying the bucket is sitting down, having a chat. How are you? And does that do the job, do you think? I personally believe it does. I've written my own model around it and I believe it works. Is it based on academic research? No. Can I find you 30, 40 people who say they've had some benefit from it? Yeah, absolutely. I can. Do I think it works? Yes. Can I evidence it enough to write a paper around it? Not yet.
0: Right. (laughs) What's your model on it? It's called the Harris model, ironically. (laughs) No, no, I didn't talk
4: about it. It's just that it's a model of psychological peer support. It's a whole sort of, let's give you some resilience training. Let's do the interventions. And then if the intervention doesn't help, which is this chatting, signpost you to the expert, signpost you to some occupational health, to an employee assistance provider, some cognitive behavioral therapy. My model is based on, I'm not an expert, but I know how to have a, A conversation.
0: Yeah. So so tell me what resilience training would look like then.
4: I think think when you, you know, if you talk about millennials and the type of people applying to join the fire service now, are they aware I joined knowing that I was going to spend a large proportion of my time seeing nasty stuff? Right. I think we have people joining now, and rightly so. We've tried to change the dynamic of the people that apply to the fire service to be able to do that prevention stuff, to bring some more life experience. But have we prepared them for 6% of your time? You might see this. So let's give them the understanding, tell them where the help is, tell them the type of support that's available. So they're sort of prepared for it. You'll never know till you see your first dead body how you're going to react to it. But at least you're half prepared. Mm. And then it says to them, and it's okay that when you see that dead body, it's okay if you don't feel okay. We'll come and have a chat to you. So it's tell them what they're going to face, give them the help when they do face it, and give them the professional support afterwards. And going back to over 26 years, (coughs) the more female firefighters, the more diverse the workforce, for me, has changed how we talk about mental health. Right, okay. Because th- I, you can absolutely see when there's a female firefighter in the room that sometimes the conversation does change and, and it becomes that it's okay not to be okay. Yeah. So you see positive influences everywhere.
0: Yeah. yeah. And so someone like you, you said you're happy to talk about it. So, so what would be a trigger that causes problems for yourself or for people like you?
4: Ah, <laughs> that's an interesting one. For me, it's, it's 20 years of, right. of critical instant debriefing people. There are certain things that live with me, and there's an irony, as in I'm actually going through some of the trauma that I've told people for 20 years, right. this is what's going to happen to you. And it got to a head last year where it, it just became too much, and I, I went, I'm not coming into work for a bit, and I went in and I had some help, and I, had, uh, I was diagnosed with stress, anxiety, and depression, and I had some cognitive behavioural therapy. Right. But I'm quite happy now I'm back at work yeah. to talk to people about it, because if I, Steve Harris, as a middle manager in Westminster Fire Service, can talk about it, hopefully it stops
0: somebody yes. else
4: hiding it, and they can talk about it.
0: Do you do you witness that sort of more recently, on, Jim, on the on the sort of station? Do you witness people saying when they feel they're they're
5: they're just edging past okay? Uh, you do in some respects. There's still, unfortunately, a lot of people that won't have that conversation, yeah. and like Steve said putting out there that it's okay to have that conversation and who is the right person to have the conversation. It might make it a little bit easier. It might not be anybody that's on the station. They might think, well, I know who I need to ring in occupational health or we've got external companies where we were mined before. Um, you know, I can go out and speak to somebody that's totally removed from the situation. I'm not related to them. I don't work with them. I can say what I want to this person and I know in all confidence that they can help me deal with it and then I can come back and resume well, a normal in inverted commas work in life. Yeah. Because I've parked that issue, I've dealt with it externally, I've been pointing in the right direction and now I can come back and resume my path.
4: Yeah. And I think sometimes the the chats that we have from a criticism and a debriefing point of view is because it's that person coming in and we, we'll try and take somebody in uniform and somebody out of uniform, to just change the dynamic in the room and we trade on the fact that we have a reputation, we've never broken confidence, so I could go out to, to Jim's crew and they're quite happy to talk to us because they know that it's going to be just in that room and it works because we've built the trust, it is that camaraderie, oh, Steve lived the life we've lived, so he gets it and I've got someone else there that they trust. And we, and we can't save everyone, but that's why, you know, in Westminster Fire Service in particular, we've got a fantastic occupational health unit where you can have cognitive behavioural therapy. There's counselling across the UK. You've got the Firefighters Charity, you know, serving and retired firefighters and their immediate family can go and get help, rehabilitation over physical injuries, but also mental rehabilitation. You know, it, it's, it's a charity and, we, and a lot of us pay into it. And it is fantastic at what it does. And I was always going to get that mentioning today because firefighters' charity is, you know, yeah. they are fantastic. They look after us when we need it.
0: Yeah. Tell me this, it's just final thing really, sort of where do you look for inspiration from? So do you look at... I look what, at Steve. <laughs> but do you look at like um, the police or, or fire services in other countries or, or other cities? Like, Is there anything that you're there going, they're the best at this?
4: Well, I'll say, it We 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 believe, and we could probably base that on seen evidence. That we are the, the best fire service in the UK might might spark a Twitter storm on your account yeah. saying that. <laughs> but hey, we'll live by it. Um, I personally, I, I I look for inspiration. I think internally a little bit about the, the people that I work with. I know who I can go to talk to about certain things on certain subjects if I if I need to. So I I believe we have all the skills we need in house. If not, I'll go and do a bit of research and and read a lot and and a lot of my work is around going out and finding the research. I don't don't know about Jim, I can't talk for Jim.
5: I think having relationships with people like yourself, Steve, and other other people in the organisation who can point you in the right direction or give you the help that you need or say, well, I actually know somebody who might be able to help you there. There are a lot of people in this organisation and a lot of issues. Chances are if you have a conversation with somebody they're going to know somebody that can point in the right direction. As Steve says, I'd say we're up there with the best fire rescue services in the UK. We have the best reaction times. We pump so many resources into prevention and protection work. And from a response point of view, we train as hard as we can just to make sure that when we turn out the doors, we get a positive outcome every time. Tell me this, finish on this. What was your best ever day at work? What's like a a jubilant, like... It's a difficult question to answer, but what's your best day at work? Because it may involve that job you went to where you saved somebody's life. Right. Because that could be the worst day of that person's life. Right, okay, that's that's interesting. If you've saved somebody's life, you do get a fantastic feeling of elation. I've done something, I've intervened. But to say it's your best day when it's consequently somebody's worst day... It's difficult to have that because there's always that thing in the back of your mind. Yeah, I've dragged somebody out of that burning building. I've cut somebody out of that car. But there's always a consequence to that. Okay. But so the most satisfying day would be when you've gone out and you've prevented any of that from happening, really, from a broader perspective. Yeah, sort of low-key
0: satisfaction, but you don't get the the adrenaline burst. But I hear you. You don't want to put a picture of a wall of uh, your best day at work, which is, you know... The embers of a building behind you, but you carrying someone out. Yeah.
4: yeah. And, and, and that is the, the constant battle in your head, isn't it? Because there is no doubting to jump on a fire engine, drive it to an incident, get out, put a fire out is the best adrenaline buzz you will probably ever have. But to get that, somebody's had to suffer. Right. Okay. So it's that constant, again, that dichotomy. I love doing that. But somebody's either got injured, crashed a car, lost their business for us to get that adrenaline buzz. So. Right. As James said, to say it's your best day, yeah, you could. But somebody will always go, well, it was my worst day in my life. And you go, Mm. yeah, I sort of get that. I get a different satisfaction. Now, some of my best days at the moment are coming in and interacting with people in the building and we have a conversation and positive interaction about where we're going, some in-depth conversation about learning. So it's interesting Mm. because I don't do the dangerous stuff anymore. My best days are different. They're around, I read this this morning. It means this. What about that?
5: So, it's interesting, but ultimately it's always good helping people and that's why everybody joins the fire service yeah. is to help somebody. Yeah. So if you can go home at the end of the day and say, yes, I've helped somebody, I've changed somebody's life for the better, yeah. I don't think you get a better <coughs> feeling than that in any job.
4: I mean, any of you, for example, you know, we, we talked about our Twitter account earlier at West Mid Fire. We, if we put some prevention advice on there we don't know that might save five lives that day yeah. so you could say that's my best day at work I've put right. a great tweet out on that lower Twitter lower buzz again. though it though? yeah exactly there's not quite the adrenaline the retweet yeah. so quite the same but you know that at Westminster Fire tweet might save somebody's life and yeah. they might eventually come back and go yeah I saw that advice and I did this and I tested my smoke alarm on a Tuesday and it saved their life yeah it's hard sometimes to, to get a buzz but it's,
0: it's all valuable stuff Chaps I really appreciate that thank you thank you
3: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: I love that discussion. Thank you to Jim White and Steve Harris. Uh, collectively, they've got over almost 40 years of experience in the West Midlands Fire Brigade. So thank you so much to to those those guys. I really appreciate the the time you took. Next up is an interview with a couple of people who've written a book about really bringing behavioural economics into business. And this is by Jez Groom and April. And it's called Ripple. The book's uh, out now. It's a book called Ripple. The big effects of small changes in behaviour. You'll remember that we had a previous episode with Jez where we talked about the workplace that changed its culture by painting its walls pink. And uh, as as Jez and April have got this new book out, available now, I was interested just to see what other examples there could be. So here's my discussion with with Jez Groom and April Vellacott.
3: Yes, so my name is Jez Groom. I'm the founder of Carry Consulting, a behavioural science consultancy.
2: I'm um, April, and it's a pleasure, pleasure to be here today. And my background is in psychology and behaviour change.
3: Quite a lot of the literature that's been written to date has been from academics, um, and it's just amazing work. Um, And it's essentially codifying and really empirically evidencing scientifically the psychological principles, which are often seen as quite, quite soft. and I think the real opportunity that we grasped um, 10 years ago and have really honed our skills on is practical application of those theories. And, um, and that, I suppose, prompted us to, to write a book because we felt there was, a, there was a big gap in the market that essentially people have got excited about these theories. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been told that there's an opportunity to maybe influence behavior by nudging. But there was no real guidebook to say, how can you, how can you do this? And, and that's what brought myself and April together to say, well, let's write a book and let's write a book called Ripple.
0: I'm particularly interested. Obviously, this is about workplace culture. When we had you on before, Jez, mm-hmm. you talked about the, uh, the 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 way that a company, a, a building contractors, had painted the walls pink yeah. in their organisation. And uh, I was really taken when I read ripple that there's there's another story that I think you and I had talked about, but we hadn't recorded on the on the day. Um, and that was the, the the specific one. I think it's probably quite relevant now. And it was a challenge that an organization in Latin America had had um, about trying to get workers in an abattoir to wash their hands.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, we did some work um, and it was in sort of around about 2013, 14. And um, I think it was it's a problem prevalent then, as is now, that that people just don't wash their hands properly. Um, and um, I think specifically this was in a food manufacturing environment. And um, so you can imagine a, a big, a big sort of shell of a building and inside a lot of workers. And and it was really interesting. And initially we thought we were going to go to a chocolate factory or, or maybe kind of a vegetable factory. But what it turned out is we went to the largest pig abattoir in South America um and it's quite a visceral environment you know so you can hear things you can smell things um people are gloved up um, masked up um, you can only see their their eyes um all in these white gowns um and um yeah it's quite a strange environment and, and as part of their process when they take breaks or when they go to the toilet they've got to wash their hands in a specific way and also wash their boots as well but we focused on, on hands because that was where the problem was um, and um, the level of compliance was OK, um, but it needed to be higher. And they tried lots and lots of things. I mean, even like telling things, you know, so if you're in a pig abattoir, you know, you, you can take the bugs from the, the pigs. So these, these bacteria, you can if you don't wash your hands properly during the day, you can take it back home. And some of these bacteria can actually have significant consequences for you, for your children and your family. But But still, people didn't wash their hands, even though they knew that. For business, sometimes if they didn't wash their hands, then the product may well get um, infected. So in this case, the pork. So imagine a situation where, you know, all these rounds of pork that were going out on a daily or weekly basis might have to be thrown away because you hadn't washed your hands properly. But. Even knowing those two sort of very significant sort of outcomes, um, a lot of people just didn 't wash their hands and, and the reason why was we did an audit to try and understand it and and started to use academic thinking um, and we, we looked at this behavioral model so i 'll let April talk about the behavioral model that we used specifically and why that model, and then what we observed and, and how it all came together
2: yeah so so theories are actually really useful for working out what 's going on with a behavioral problem um, and they 're also really helpful when you want to suggest ways to solve them as well. So you, you can use theories um, in a couple of ways. You can use it to work out the problem and figure out what's actually going wrong. And you can also use it to make sure that your nudge idea um, is actually taking off all the areas of the theory and so that it's addressing the whole problem. Um, and, I mean, anyone who starts to do some desk research on hand washing behavior we'll find that habits are a really important um, part of this behavior, so a habit is basically a routine of behavior that you you do a lot and you tend to do it quite subconsciously, so you don't think too hard about it and that's exactly what hand washing is right so um yeah. think back to a couple of months ago before the government started telling us to wash our hands all the time um, and i'd like to think that most of us would have been automatically and subconsciously washing our hands um, after going to the loo and to be perfectly honest I can't remember exactly what my technique was or how long I was washing them for um, but it was essentially a behavior that I did a lot but I wasn't thinking too hard about it so that's what makes makes washing your hands um, it, it's a really classic um habit behavior um, and so when you're thinking about how you use behavioural science to help people wash their hands more? You really need to find a theory which um, thinks about the role that habits um, play in 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 the whole in the whole behaviour. And it's it's funny, but most theories don't actually um, think about the role of habits and how they influence behaviour. Um, but one that one that does. Uh, is the theory of interpersonal behavior, and this was developed by a guy called Harry Triandis, and he was a he was a psychology professor at the University of Illinois. So, according to Triandis, every time we behave in a situation, it's influenced by several things. So, firstly, you've got what you what you intend to do, then you've got what what you have a habit of doing. And then you have what the situation you're in lets you do, and he calls these facilitating conditions. But it's essentially what what you can do in a in a situation. So um, th- th- this is a really useful theory for explaining things like um, things like hand washing, um, and it, it was one that really helped work out what was going wrong with the, these workers and pig abattoirs um, just not washing their hands. And it helped to design this intervention to help them wash their hands more. Um, And it was just this one tiny nudge that had a massive ripple effect for the abattoir.
3: I think a key part of the model was people, um, I suppose, believing that they'd washed their hands properly. Um, and I think a phrase that has kind of come into common vernacular now, but we were using it five years ago, was it's really hard to see whether you've washed your hands properly, um, whether the bugs have gone away. Um, so so that's quite interesting, was have I done it properly? I don't know. Um, and, and trying to resolve that conundrum. Um, the second one, which I think we're very aware of right now, which is... Um, What were the people doing? And the problem we had was there was a lot of people just weren't washing their hands properly. So so when you see people aren't washing their hands, then... Then you think actually maybe maybe I can get away with it sort of too, um, and um, and the other one was kind of like feeling good about washing your hands and feeling bad about not washing your hands. There wasn't any any sort of feeling of that. So we did a number of um, workshops with the client with with uh, the people on the ground and with translators. It, we're in Latin America, and um, and we had about six different ideas, and some of them were were pretty good. Um, but we did we stress test them against the Triandis model um, as April um, mentioned earlier. And we figured on this one idea that, that really, really stood out. Um, it was just beautiful um, in its simplicity. And the idea is this, is that as you walked up to the hand washing station, your colleagues, and it was really important your colleagues did this. It wasn't your bosses or your superiors. It was your fellow colleagues. You turn your hands over and on the back of your hand, they would put a stamp. And it was in a specific ink, which was food safe because it was in a a food environment. um, But also as well, it was sure fast. And what I mean by that was we did a lot of testing to make sure that you couldn't wash it off really quickly. Um, so people could do it and wash it off um, without a, a getting to a thirty seconds that that we had in this in this experiment. But also as well, it didn't take too long, so people didn't get frustrated about it. they were trying to get this kind of ink off the back of their hands. And the stamp itself is, was we had four different versions, like Listeria, Camilla back well, People don't wash the back of their hands. I mean, you, you can see it. There, you can see it now that often people put essentially it's very very natural to put something in the middle of your hands, rub your hands together, and then wash. Whereas if you see people in surgical scrubs, essentially when they're you can see them do the, do the, obviously the inside, but then you see them put one hand on top of the other and essentially rub the back of one and rub the back of another and then they'll do their nails. And, and this is really important. Um, so, so we... Use the placement of it to get people to exhibit the, the right behavior, um, and then then the pictures were like these horrible bugs. It was like these like they were like slugs with like horns, and they were going to bite you. So you, so it didn't feel very nice. And we made these invisible bugs visible. You're like, I don't like this. We also chose a specific color. Um, it's kind of like a yellowy brown um, that um, you know we don't particularly like across culture. You know, something feels like maybe a little bit dirty. Um, and um, and essentially, people would have to go into the wash station and they wash wash their hands and so they'd wash it off, they'd see other people washing it off and and, and they came out of the other the other side and they exhibited the behaviour. And if they hadn't washed their hands, then they had essentially this stamp or this half stamp that people could see that they were dirty. So they felt dirty. And and what was I think amazing I think was how we measured it because we did a lot of different ways that we could measure the experiment. So how did people feel, you know, ask them if they did wash their hands or videoing them. But what we did was something very scientific. We essentially took swabs of their hands. Um, So we took like a cotton bud, swabbed them, and then we had petri dishes where we grew cultures and and coliform. Um, And then we started to look at the incidence of those coliforms and microbial counts. And so we had a very, very scientific way to say, has their hands been washed in the right way and what we found was there was a 63% reduction in uh, I suppose dirty hands uh, which was just amazing Um, you know it was kind of to see that sort of happen instantaneously um, was a really really positive result and it was just critical that we ran this experiment for a certain period of time but then we did this genius thing is we took away the hand stamp but we continued to measure and this is why nudge theory and why behavioral science is so powerful is because as April said earlier because we've established a habit we've built the habit that everybody was doing over three weeks. Um, Essentially, as we measured it, a dip um, a point later. So we went in and did the same thing on the microbial counts. And we had a 90% consistency with that initial result. So without having anything there at all, apart from this habit that we'd essentially imprinted onto their mind that everybody was doing, we'd retained 90% of the 63% on an ongoing basis. And I think that's the genius of these types of ideas. It's incredibly simple um, and brutal in its simplicity, but very elegant and something that lasts for a long time. And one of the questions we get asked as behavioural scientists, and I think April would agree, would be um, how many times does it take to create a habit? Um, and everyone thinks there's a magical figure, Um, And there is for a specific behavior in a specific context with a specific group of people. So in fact, there's lots and lots of these. So there was a meta-analysis done of what the exact number was. And it can be anywhere between 14, if it's a a very, very frequent, very rewarded, very motivating behavior, to something like 160, you know. And the average was around about 68, 69 times. And and I think because they were washing their hands eight times a day, um, I think we got to that level of automaticity that as soon as they came into the, that environment, their brain said, well, this is what I do here. Um, and I, th- I think, I think that's, and that's the genius, I think, that we programmed essentially the, the subconscious to say, okay, given this context, given the people around me, given what I've taught myself to do, it just happens automatically and I do it without thinking. And that's when I think nudge theory works brilliantly.
0: Thank you to Jez and April. Their book is available now and I've I've put a link to it in the show notes. I hope you've enjoyed this today. If you are interested in this, please do subscribe to our newsletter. Like I say, it's the top link on the show notes today. Uh, Next up, there's a, a couple of episodes really just talking... Next up, there's an episode that's going to be talking about the importance of being social in a time of Corona. So I think, you know, I'm going to go through some of the research that demonstrates how important being social is to humans and why we need to really strive to retain it in this strange time we're going into. I've been Bruce Daisley. Always welcome you getting in touch on LinkedIn or on Twitter. See you next time.